Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Clever Girls Know podcast. This is Bola Shokumbi. I'm the founder and CEO of Clever Girl Finance. The Clever Girls Know podcast is a podcast for women, offering a space for conversations around personal finance, business, life, and living. I'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast, and you can do that everywhere you listen to your podcast episodes. And if you love what you listen to, head on over to iTunes and leave a review so that other amazing women just like you can find this podcast as well. I'd also love for you to stop by clevergirlfinance.com. We have new content on the blog multiple times a week. We have over 30 plus free courses. Plus, when you sign up for a course, you can talk to a Clever Girl Finance mentor for free to get encouragement, motivation, or if you just want to have an open, no shame, no judgment girl talk. Finally, check out our YouTube channel. Just search Clever Girl Finance on YouTube. And if you don't already follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Clever Girl Finance. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. Hey, Molly. <laughs> Hi, I'm so excited to be here. I just feel like, I mean, I feel like we're like old friends. I mean, yeah, I've yeah. On my podcast, like, that's like seven years ago or something like that. I know, I know. So and time, time has flown so quickly, but I am so excited to have you back here on uh, the Clever Girls Know podcast. You've been on the podcast twice already. You were in my book, Clever Girl Finance, my first book. You shared your incredible story of paying off $37,000 of of debt. And now you are back as a special guest and you have just written your own book called If I Don't Laugh, I'll Cry. (laughs) And I can't wait to talk about your book. But before we dive in, please tell everybody who you are and what you do. Yes. Hi. Well, I'm so happy to be back. I'm just honored. We got to have you back because you've done a lot since the last time you were on my show. Yeah. So my name is Molly Stillman and I have been in the content creation writing space for 20 years almost. And uh, (laughs) I have written a blog for about that time. And I host a podcast called Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? Formerly known that I call it the podcast formerly known as Business with Purpose. I rebranded it. I love it. A year ago. (laughs) And it's called Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? And I also travel and speak at churches and conferences and things like that. And as you mentioned, yes, my first book comes out in March, March 26th, 2024. Yeah, we're we're just, we're days, feels like weeks away. And yes. I'm so excited. And it's, it, yeah, I, I could not be more. I just am like, I have all this nervous energy because I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited for you. Congratulations again. And the Thank full you. title of your book is called If I Don't Laugh, I'll Cry. How Death, Debt, and Comedy Led to, led to a Life of Faith farming and forgetting what I came into this room for. And (laughs) that title sounds very lighthearted and fun, but at the same time, it's very deep. Mm -hmm. And just like there's, it's, it's a loaded title. And I, I'm just looking forward to having this conversation with you. So I want to start from the beginning. And for those of you who are new to the podcast or new to learning who Molly is, she, like I mentioned, she's been on the podcast twice. She was on episode 47 where you came on to share your debt story. Mm-hmm. And then you came back on episode 114 to talk about the emotions that came from being in debt and how you navigated those emotions during your debt-free journey. Yeah. But as it relates to your book, because this is like your full end-to-end from basically childhood to where you are now and everything that happened in between and everything we don't know about you outside of that debt story you share with us. So can you share more about one of the things you talk about in your book is losing your mom at a very young age. And I'd love for you to talk more about just that emotional journey of losing your mom and the impact it had on your life and the choices you made afterwards. Yeah. So to to catch people up, so my mom was an army nurse during the Vietnam War. And you might say, well, what relevance does that have? And it's everything. <laughs> and partly because, you know, for, for people that aren't familiar, Vietnam veterans came home to a very different America than we live in today. It was just a, 
a, a deeply, deeply divided country in as far as the war was concerned. Not that we aren't still divided over other things mm-hmm. today, but the military came home not to, you know, brass bands and welcome home signs or things like that. The military was deemed baby killers and mm-hmm. they were pariahs and it was a, just a very different time. We didn't you know, have a term for PTSD. And so you had all of these men and women coming home from war with severe PTSD and they weren't given the tools to deal with it. And, you know, so my mom returned from Vietnam, you know, suffering from PTSD and alcoholism and she was doing drugs and so many different things. And, you know, the first few years after she got home from Vietnam, she didn't even tell her therapist that she had been to Vietnam. Like that's how deeply was burying this reality. And fast forward, you know, a a couple of decades and I was born or actually just a decade and I was born in 1985. And in the fall of 1994, we were renovating, we lived in a really old house, like hundred year old house. And if anybody that's ever lived or grown up in an old house, something always has to be fixed or (laughs) yes. And um, so we had one bathroom in the whole house, like one full bathroom, one shower. And, you know, I was getting older and we had a foster sister and let's just say two adults and a teenager and a teenager sharing one. It was just not happening. So in any event, they were renovating one of the smaller rooms to be another primary bathroom. And In that process, some of the hundred-year-old dust from the walls, the horsehair insulation, there was like dead birds in the walls, all of that got into my mom's lungs. And essentially, because she had been exposed to high levels of Agent Orange, the chemical agent, Agent Orange in Vietnam, her immune system was essentially vulnerable and unlocked to something that could come in. And so this, this dust got in the walls and within 24 hours, she was in ICU on a ventilator. And that began a very long journey of dealing with an extremely rare chronic illness that my mom had been diagnosed with. And it all stemmed back from her service in Vietnam. And it, it, you know, for anybody that's ever dealt with chronic illness or an ill parent, it is, it, it, takes everything from you. And there were parts that I was fully aware of. And then there was also parts of it that my parents really, you know, for better or for worse, chose to keep from me. You know, she had been given initially a a, a kind of a life sentence of about two years. And so the disease was a just rare, you know, people always ask like, what was it called? It had a name that was really long. <laughs> Only about four other people in the world have ever been diagnosed with anything similar, but it was kind of wow. a worry slash autoimmune disease mm-hmm. all things. And, you know, so the, the doctor said, you probably have about two years. My parents kept that information from me initially. They just felt like it was not something that they, that I should know. And so we did our best to, you know, treat the symptoms as much as we could, but it was, you know, I watched my active mom who had run marathons and was vibrant and healthy. I watched her deteriorate from the age of nine until I was 17, fall my senior year of high school, when ultimately she passed away from it. And so that whole process of like, if you think about from the age of nine to 17, like these are vital. Yeah. Yeah. You have a lot going on in those years as a young woman. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it was just, it was just a lot. I just was carrying so much emotionally. And so then by the time she passed away, it just was really the straw that broke the camel's back as far as my emotional, mental, spiritual well-being. However, I I didn't have the tools, the resources to deal with it. Nobody said, you know what, maybe you should go see a counselor <laughs> or, you know, yeah. It's amazing how far we've come in the mental health and dealing with grief realm in the past 20 plus years. Cause really at the time it was it, nobody batted an eye at the fact that I tried to go to school the next day and Mm -hmm. just tried to be like, everything's fine. Like I'm fine. Everything's fine. And I just suppressed it. 
And as we all know, the reality of that is that is not healthy and that is not sustainable. And so eventually it it all bubbled to the surface. But yeah, so that was, I mean, that's a longer answer to your question, but that that really, I think, helps set up my yeah. mental, emotional, and spiritual state that I made then all mm-hmm. decisions through was yeah. this this mindset of I'm fine. Everything is fine. Yeah. And I know you've talked about, we've talked about this before, but never to this extent. So it's really insightful to get that, I guess, background on where you're coming from, especially as you tell your story in your book. And, you know, a listener hearing this, it's like, well, I I can understand why it's called <laughs> if I don't laugh out cry because that's I and I live by that model as well because there's things that I've navigated in my life that are just so painful and so difficult that if I if I don't laugh about it yeah. I would literally lose my mind and I can imagine you in those formative years of your life it, it, you must have just been devastated especially because you you saw her decline over mm-hmm. years you didn't have the mom that you needed because of the circumstances yeah. um you started to be aware of this is why she is sick and yeah. not just this she's had this horrific experience from a war that is now carried over into our home even though she's back and she came back safely it's it's a lot of things i guess so blended together right so many things so, Given that foundation or that background, you then go on to inherit a significant sum of money. Mm-hmm. And this is a part of the story that I did not share when I was yes. on the podcast. No, you did not share this. Yeah, this not is new this information. <laughs> Specifically, a quarter of a million dollars, $245,485.74 was the inheritance cents. that you got. So where did this inheritance come from? And how did you go from having 250K to getting five figures in debt? Like what happened? What were the decisions you were making with this money? Was any of this triggered by losing your mom? Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny because I have shared my debt story, obviously quite a bit over the last 12 years, (laughs) but this piece of it is of how I got into debt. I kept really private for a very long time. And I'll I'll kind of share that that piece in a little bit. But as far as where it came from, because people are always like, I'm sorry, I have questions. And I'm like, I'm aware that you do. <laughs> you know, once I started sharing this piece of the story, because like I said, I nobody knew this piece of the story for a very long time. So the short version is my mom was one of five children, you know, Irish Catholic family. And my mom's family uh, became estranged during her illness. And it's a a long story, but essentially my mom's four sisters and her mom essentially disowned us while my mom was ill. So my, my grandfather died in 1996. And then that was kind of the last contact that we had because my mom was really, really close with her dad. She was also close with her mom, but she was really close with her dad. And when my grandfather died, that was essentially the the catalyst for, you know, losing all contact with that side of the family. Was it because and, was it because she was ill? What what, what was their reason if they yeah, were so close? Yeah. So this is always one of those things that especially as I wrote about this section of the book, I had to be really careful with how I how I share this this piece. But, you know, essentially. In all families, there is drama. There just is. Oh, yeah. And, listen, and, yeah, <laughs> I know this. <laughs> families are messy. Families are messy. However, there was I, I believe to this day now kind of having hindsight at the whole situation, there was a lot of deep seated issues that stemmed from my mom's service in Vietnam that were never dealt with. And essentially, when my mom got ill, there was there was essentially some of her family felt like my mom's illness was not real. They felt like it was a show and that my mom was just Mm -hmm. back to her old drug addicted ways. Um, That is obviously not true. Um, but throughout this process, um, they essentially 
disowned us. Um, it was, yeah, there's a lot more to it, but that's essentially yeah. the, the short version. Of it. Of it, yeah. And this part was, was the most difficult I would say to write because having to navigate, like, how do I write this in a way that like helps explain to people without giving away all the messy details, you know, like airing yeah. all the dirty laundry. So it's, it's complicated, <laughs> but um, yeah. essentially, you know, so we lost all contact with my grandmother, with my, with my aunts, my cousins, all of it. It was really, that was a really painful experience because I was super close with my, with my grandmother and and my aunts and, and my cousins. And, and it was really like another hurt. So it just felt like we were hemorrhaging everything in our lives. We were just losing everything. And so my, when my mom died in 2002, so two years later, so I was in college, my grandmother died in 2004. Now I was never notified that my, my grandmother had died. No one, no one had told me. I didn't know. It wasn't until two years later that I found out that she had died. Oh my God. So when I learned in the summer of 2006 that she had died, and that I had heard rumblings that there was an estate. And essentially, my grandfather had set up, he was he was a business guy, but he had owned some properties. You know, my my both my grandparents were like lifelong lived in lived in Arlington, Virginia, outside of DC. And my grandfather had invested in some real estate in Georgetown in you know the 30s. And you can imagine what Georgetown was like in 1930s versus mm-hmm. what it was like in the early 2000s and even today. And mm-hmm. so essentially those properties got put into a trust and the estate and the trust said that when the last living grandparent died, that the trust would then, the, the properties would be sold off and the revenue from that real estate transaction would be then split up five ways between the, the children. Mm-hmm. Well... The, the estate said that if one of the children was no longer living, my mom, yeah. that the next eligible child would get it. However, that child had to be 21 years of age. So this estate had been dealt with, the, the money had been split off. But my understanding, again, I had heard that this rumor that this was a thing. However, because we had had no contact with them, I was like, surely we've been written out of the will. Like there's yeah. no, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not in this will. There's not a chance I'm in the will, whatever. And so, and and I also had no idea like what really was involved in it. Like I didn't yeah. know the properties and anything. So on August 23rd, 2006, my 21st birthday, I it was my second day of my senior year of college. I get a call from the campus mail room and the campus mail room says, Hey, you've got a certified letter here. You got to come sign for. And I was like, okay, I don't know what that is. So I go and I go, you know, check my mail and I get this certified letter and I walk over to, you know, a couch nearby to open it up. And inside is a letter. And on top of that letter is a check for 245,000 something, you know, and 74 (laughs) cents. And I nearly passed out. I mean, it's just like, because again, so that's not- how it happens. I, you know, you see this Literally. in the movies. So they plan Literally. it to get to you on your birthday and they actually send you a check. I thought you were going to say, oh, there's a number for me to call to come get my no. money. But there was a check. A physical check. <laughs> a physical check. They and found I- you and they mailed you the check. Yes. And truly like it was, it, I, it was, I, I'm like, I still to this day, I'm like, how did they get my campus email it like yeah. my process at school. How did they I, confirm it was you, the right Molly? I mean, I guess they just like, I mean, I guess lawyers can find that information, but I, I genuinely to this day, people are like, really, you got a physical check? I'm like, yes, it was just a <laughs> letter with a, it had like a packet of information in it, which I still have to this day about the, the transaction and that, and it was like, that was after taxes. So they had already taken the taxes out. So that was like, the amount that I got yeah. really would have been, it was really close to like almost a half a million dollars, yeah. but most yeah. of it was in taxes. Wow. And so, uh, but they, that was the check for like what I got. And so here I'm sitting here and I'm like, what is, what do I do with this? I, I had so many questions. Like, do I just go to a bank and walk up to a teller and say, Hi. is it fake? Do I rip it up? I thought it was fake. I I had so many questions. And but the other thing too is I'm sitting here and suddenly I'm like, do people see me holding this check for this? I mean, because especially 21st birthday when you're like, yeah, it could have been a, a prank, right? 
I was thinking that too. 21st birthday. Who's pranking me with this 250K check? Yeah. I had, I, I had so many questions. I was, yeah. So anyway, that's, I mean, that's how I got it. And so then I guess you asked, you know, so then how do I go from, from this? What did you do with it? <laughs> right. So, you know, obviously I, I really, I, I didn't want other people to know because it felt so, I mean, I didn't want to like call attention to myself with this. Just mm-hmm. be like, hey, look at me. I got a check for a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> so, you know, I, I went to a bank and I walked up <laughs> to the teller and I said, I'd like to deposit this check. And she looked at me and she looked down at the check. She looked at me and she looked down at the check and she's like, go see that guy sitting over there. And I mean, you know, so I went through the process and, but the reality is, and and I say this a lot in the book, you know, and, and I say this all the time. I own my mistakes. I, the only person that made the mistakes and made the choices were me. So I don't blame anyone but me. However, the one thing I always kind of go back to is like, not a single person in that bank go, it's this girl's 21st birthday and she's just gotten this check. She doesn't know what to do with it. Like no one thought to say, Hey, maybe you should go speak with a financial advisor. Like maybe, maybe you should get some financial counseling. No, no one said anything like that. And so, you know, I, I gave some of it to my dad. I gave some of it to my sister. I started a scholarship at my university in my mom's name. And so after that, I was like, okay, like I've, I've given some to my dad. I've gave some to my sister. I started this scholarship. Like now I can just spend it. Like it never occurred to me, maybe I should put some in investing. Maybe I should save for retirement. Like maybe I should put some in save. I mean, it just nobody, I mean, when you don't have financial education, when you don't have anybody guiding you, you know, because, because finances just weren't something we really talked about. I knew we didn't have money when I was growing up. And Mm -hmm. so suddenly I have this wad of cash that I can just do anything with. And it felt so freeing. I'm not going to lie. Like there were times I was like, this is fun. So what did I do on my 21st birthday? I went to a Jeep dealership. And I bought a brand new $40,000 Jeep Commander, wrote a check (laughs) like it was nothing. And it was so much fun. I was like, yeah, I want this brand new limited edition car. And then you know what I did is I went to the mall and I went shopping. And then I went on trips to New York City where I was studying comedy. And I went down Fifth Avenue and I walked in that Fendi store and I saw the Shekinah Glory Bola shining (laughs) on that beautiful beautiful Fendi bag. Oh, with the buckles. I can still see it in my mind today. And it was you like, still have oh, it. No, gosh, no. <laughs> I felt, when I was getting out of debt, I was selling all those mistakes. <laughs> I have nothing from when I, from that time. Cause I, I sold it all and I cried big tears. The title of me. your book is, is, is so spot on. The fact <laughs> that we can sit here and laugh about this is <laughs> it's, it's not even funny, but it's funny. It, it is funny. No, it is funny. <laughs> about how funny it is but seriously the Shekinah glory man shined on that Fendi bag and like three grand out the window and then what did I do for spring break that year I flew me and my boyfriend first class to Rome for a week you know what I mean like why Rome because it was why not Rome and why not upgrade to first class seats on an eight hour you know seven hour flight like yeah, I just and so it was death by a thousand cuts. And, mm-hmm. and and it just it it never occurred to me at any time. Should I budget? Like, should I monitor how much I'm spending? Because the reality was, is what that was what I was doing that that was a coping mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. Was, and you're coming was, off of so many years, eight years of navigating your mom's illness emotional issues from your family breaking apart seeing your mom decline losing your mom and then this check lands in your lap and it's like here's something to take my mind off of things plus you know when you say that there was no one that said that talked to you about money I can't imagine that money was forefront when you had a parent that they had given a she has two years to live or right yeah so no yeah it was it was totally yeah. I mean, and I, you know, I, I watched my parents live paycheck to paycheck. You know, my mom's disability ran out very quickly because she couldn't work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the VA never gave us a dime for her illness because they denied that Agent Orange was a thing. Wow. Um, 
And so the only really kind of service connection she got through the VA was for her PTSD. And so, you know, we were, you know, we had medical insurance, but even then I think it was like an 80, 20 thing. And when she's spending, you know, weeks, months in the ICU like that, we had tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds, a hundred plus thousand dollars in medical bills. You know, and my dad was, had started a a new business. And so like he was a self-employed business owner. I mean, it was, it was really, really tight. We were just tight financially. And so I think because of that, you know, it just, we didn't talk about money. And so I didn't have financial I wasn't financially savvy yeah. uh, enough to know any better. And like I said, because money had been so tight for so long to suddenly have this financial freedom to just like do what I wanted was so therapeutic. And yeah. for a lot of people, you know, for everybody, grief manifests itself in different ways for different people. A lot of sometimes it can be through drugs or alcohol. It can be through sex. It can be through a variety of things. That's like a coping mechanism for people through grief. Those were not my story. My story was spending money. It was just mm. this, and it's like a less sexy way, you know, of, of, of you know, be like, people like, Oh, wow. You know, she was on drugs and alcohol and got clean. Like that wasn't, my yeah. story. it was like, I shopped and I spent money as a, as a coping mechanism. And when I would get depressed and I would feel sad or I was feeling suicidal, like literally my Hmm. solution was, I'm just going to go shopping. Yeah. I'm going to go, I'm going to go on a trip. I'm going to go do something because it's that it's, it's a chemical reaction that's happening in your brain of this dopamine release Mm -hmm. where you're just getting this adrenaline. And so suddenly you feel better momentarily. Yeah. Um, And so that's what, that's what I was doing it. And I don't make excuses for it. Again, I, I own my mistakes. Um, but it, but, but again, it became, it began this process of, I was just spending so recklessly and making just wildly irresponsible financial decisions and not telling anybody about it and not dealing with it. Mm -hmm. And, and so then I find myself less than two years later, June of 2008, over $36,000, you know, nearly $37,000 in consumer credit card debt. And I couldn't make the minimum payments on my cards. I could barely make my rent. And I was earning $30,000 a year as a teacher. And so the, you know, and, and that piece of the story I've obviously shared. Yeah. When people find out the the why and how I got there, it. I helped, it helps to, to paint a picture of like, there was a level of shame and embarrassment that I can't even really fully convey of how ashamed and embarrassed I was for the decisions that I'd made. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, even though you, you, you hadn't always disclosed the inheritance aspect, I do feel that being where you were, even if you hadn't gotten that inheritance, because you were trying to navigate your grief, um, you still you still were leveraging, even without the money, before it came, you were still leveraging spending and doing nice things for yourself as a way yeah. to make yourself feel momentarily yeah. better about what had happened. So I, I do appreciate you for sharing that. It does definitely give more, more insight to your background and where you're coming from, but it doesn't take away from the story you have shared in the past because yeah. you still share the journey. You just didn't share 250K. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you have spent the inheritance you are now at a point where you, two years later or so, you are in debt. You can't pay your bills. You're working as a teacher, but then you had a stint in comedy, right? You you yeah. picked up a career in comedy. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm assuming you are using humor as well as a coping mechanism because, again, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. Yeah. Tell me about that career path in comedy and that's during that season and how did that help your personal growth? Because you became a teacher eventually, right? So tell me more about that. And why did you choose comedy as a coping mechanism? How was that helping you? Yeah. Well, my life dream was to be on Saturday Night Live. That was what I wanted to do ever since I was a kid. I always loved making people laugh. I loved theater and I just loved performing. I was, you know, always involved in musicals and I sang and 
just being on stage gave me such joy. I love bringing joy to other people. Mm-hmm. And so my, yeah, my life dream was to star on Saturday Night Live. That was all I wanted to do. And I came from a family of just big personalities. You know, both my parents are Irish Catholic and huge senses of humor. And so, you know, my parents, even throughout all of our, the tragedy that we faced, my parents really taught me that laughter is the best medicine. And so we did everything we could to overdose on it. And so that was, you know, I came by that honestly in that I watched my parents really laugh through really, really difficult times. Mm -hmm. And so, so again, I think it was kind of in my blood. And so I started actually doing improv and sketch comedy in high school and then really dove into it in college. I was in a campus sketch comedy group and it sounds like, oh, that was a cute little club. I mean, like we had shows throughout the year where we would sell out, you know, it was standing room only in in like a massive theater. So it was a very like well-respected comedy group on campus. And, and then I started traveling to New York city and I have a cousin who lives in New York. And so I would go up and I would stay with her and I would cousin from my dad's side. And I would, I would stay with her and take these intensive improv and sketch classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and People's Improv Theater and Second City Training Center in New York, which doesn't exist anymore, but it did. And I was just, I loved it. Oh my gosh, I loved it. I got you know, I got to go see Saturday Night Live and I would attend these improv shows. And so I was just working towards moving to New York. That was the ultimate goal was moving to New York and doing improv and, and you know, getting onto SNL magically. And, but, you know, as I started to, as I graduated college, I mean, I, even as wildly irresponsibly uh, or irresponsible I was financially, um, I still knew like, I can't go to New York without a job lined up because New York is so expensive Mm -hmm. to live there. And so I would apply for jobs and I would look for apartments and I just, I couldn't find anything. And so I, I wasn't, I'm not enough of a risk taker to move to a city without a job lined up. And I was, it's not like I was above being a waitress. Like I was a waitress, but it's just was like, I knew that that wouldn't be sustainable to live in New York on a waitress salary for what I wanted to do. And so I was just applying for jobs left and right. And, but you know, for people that don't know, they say that the, the people who graduated college between the years of like 2006 to 2010, and I graduated in 07, graduated into one of the most difficult job markets in history. Yep. And that was coming out of that, that the recession. recession. Yep. The recession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, they, they say that it was one of the hardest job markets since like the great depression looking back and unemployment was just at an astronomically high amount. And, and so nowhere was hiring. It was just impossible to get a job. And so, you know, I, I went to plan B, I was still focusing on that. And so when I, when I graduated college and I went, I moved to Richmond and I, you know, had other jobs and then I I got a job as a teacher, which I didn't even go to college to be a teacher, but they were so (laughs) desperate for teachers that they were like, you can just get certified while you, while, while you teach. teach. <laughs> I was like, okay. So Test I mean, it out. <laughs> yeah. They were like, you can teach and whatever you got your degree in and you have three years to get your certification while you're teaching. And so I was like, okay. And, and so I did that and I really loved it. And then, but all the while I was still doing, cause there was a good improv comedy scene in Richmond. And so I was doing that. And, and then again, on my breaks, I would, you know, summer, I would go up to New York and I would stay there for three, four weeks at a time and take classes and stuff. And, and then eventually I moved to North Carolina and was actually doing some comedy here in North Carolina again, with the mindset of like, I'm going to move to New York. This is just a temporary stepping stone. And here I am 15 years later and I'm mm-hmm. now live on a farm, very different from New York. But yeah. So, I mean, it just, it, it was a coping mechanism, but I also really loved it. You enjoyed it. Um, yeah. yeah, I really did. But it was, you know, eventually I got to the point where I had to ask myself a question of, do I actually want to move to New York? Like, is this a lifestyle Because I started, you know, as I got more into the comedy scene, I started seeing 
how full-time comedians, like people who do this, that's their life. That's all they do. And so many of them like don't have families. And I, I knew I wanted a family someday and I just wasn't sure if it was ultimately the lifestyle for me. And so I, I took a pause and and then God did some other work <laughs> in the meantime, but, um, <laughs> but I actually, I really miss doing improv and sketch. I loved it. But now I put those skills to the test or to the, to use, you know, through my podcast and when yeah. I get to speak and, and do things like that. So I still get to use those skills, but not in the way that I used to, mm-hmm. but I still nerd out over, over good improv. <laughs> so let's talk about that turning point then, because you were navigating the loss of your mom. You were navigating getting and blowing your inheritance. You were navigating, coping through things with comedy. What was the turning point that led you away from being depressed and towards a new direction? I know your book, you talk about meeting your husband and discovering a church family. How did that play a role? What was there? I don't know if you had an aha moment or like what made you say, you know what, I just, I need to shift. How did you navigate that healing process to get to a better place? And this yeah. is not about paying off your debt because we know we know you paid off the debt. We know you, you yeah. got out that 37K, but this is more about like that mental, emotional state you were in. Yeah. How did you navigate through that? Yeah. I, and I say all of this because I feel like it's an important preface of it's going to look different for everybody. And I understand, mm-hmm. understand that. For me, I, you know, I didn't grow up in a, in a home, like I didn't know the Lord and I, I wasn't uh, a Christian and I, I was using all of these outward coping mechanisms to deal with what was really an internal struggle, an internal search for identity, for meaning, for purpose. And, you know, whether, you know, wherever you are, you know, people listening, wherever you are in like a spiritual journey, whether you would say like, I, I'm a very spiritual person, I'm a religious person, or I'm not, you know, I think we can all admit and all accept that we we as human beings, like our natural desire is to kind of know, like, what, what is the meaning of life? Like, why are Mm -hmm. we or what is our purpose in life? What, you know, where did we come from? Like there's these, these existential questions that, that I think really resonate with all of us. But for me personally, I was, I was floundering. I was, I had no firm foundation on which to place anything in my life. And so I was searching for identity and purpose and meaning in things of the world, as far as success and money and power and fame. And, you know, just these outward things I I was idolizing. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is those things will always disappoint us. And they did. And so from one day, I, I finally, I, I got to a point where I, I hit rock bottom, not just financially, but emotionally and spiritually, and, you know, I, as I kind of mentioned, I, I, I really struggled with a lot of suicidal ideation and, and, and hopelessness. And in the only like woo woo way I know how to say it's just like, there was one day where I just kind of felt this still small voice in the back of my head say, why don't you just give church a try? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't believe in Jesus. Like, I don't believe in any of that stuff. And, but I I did. And I walked through the doors of a church for the first time and heard the gospel for the first time. And I walked out. It's not, and it's not like it was like a, I raised my hand and I surrendered my life to Jesus moment. It was more of a, I walked, I, I, in that day, I heard the gospel for the first time. I heard hope. There was, there was hope for me and a light at the end of the tunnel. And it was a more of a, I want what these people have, like these mm-hmm. people have a joy that I don't really understand where it comes from, but I, they, there's a, and I've learned since then, you know, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is circumstantial. It's fleeting. It's, it's something that comes from kind of, you know, your, your, the moment it's momentary. Whereas joy is a, is a heart posture. Joy is a, a position that you hold and a, a feeling that you hold and a mindset that you hold, no matter what your circumstances are, that you can be 
joyful in the midst of suffering and pain and hardship. And then also in those moments where you're happy. And I saw joy in these people's faces. And and as somebody who is a comedian, like I, I wanted to make people laugh. I wanted joy. I was lacking joy. Mm -hmm. I was making people laugh all the time, but I didn't have any joy. And, and so that was something I really, really focused on. And, and, and so I slowly, I, you know, I, I started going to church every single weekend and, you know, I've eventually surrendered my life to Jesus and surrendered my wallet to Jesus and placed every part of my life in his hands. And I can tell you that life has not been easy since then, but I am a very different person that is talking mm-hmm. to you today than I was in 2010 and beyond or, and before that, I mean, Jesus just transformed everything for me. And so to answer your, your ultimate question of like, for people that are struggling with that, like how how do you find that? And I think it's not a popular answer, but I think the reality is, is we have to deal with, you know, our outward actions, our outward behavior are Mm -hmm. ultimately a reflection of what is happening internally. And we have to deal with that. We are spiritual beings. We are people who are created in the image of God and we were created for a purpose, on purpose, for a purpose, on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose. And when we are not living our lives in a way, when we're living our lives in a way that is like focused, self-focused and internal focused and woe is me and we're making reckless decisions in our lives, that is a reflection of of the chaos that is happening within mm-hmm. us. And so I'm all about Jesus and a therapist. <laughs> like that's what you know what I mean? Because that listen, I'm telling that's a, that's a great combo. Listen, <laughs> I'm telling you, is because if we don't deal with, you know, especially now that I live on a farm, I feel like there's so many like plant and tree and uh, <laughs> analogies I can make. But you know, if you if you, for example, like we grow fruit trees. And one of our fruit trees was dying. It it looked great. It like super healthy, but then it died all of a sudden and we couldn't figure out why. And when we dug it up after it had died, like the roots never got deep enough. And so essentially they were really shallow roots for whatever reason They just, they never went deep and there was root rot. And I think that's such a great picture of like when we aren't dealing mm. with the root issue in our lives, when we're not dealing with the heart issue, the soul issue, whether it's, you know, our search for purpose and meaning and and all those things, then like we can look great for so long, but then eventually like the roots are going to rot. The inside's going to rot and the outside will too. And we have to come to, to a reckoning moment for that. So that's what it was for me. And, and, you know, people that I've talked to over the last 12 years since I started sharing my story and more people have come to, to me and said, you know, shared similar experiences or, or whatever it is that they're dealing with. It's a common denominator a hundred percent of the time. And people that say like, oh, well, I'm not it, like they're lying. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, it's a, it's, it's just a reality of it. And so that's just my encouragement is Jesus and a therapist are great, but a lot of times it's, it's the acknowledgement first that, we can't do this life on our own. We yeah. weren't created to, we weren't meant to. And so we we need help. And and that's a, I think it's a really brave thing to say that we need help. Yeah. And I feel like as a result of, you know, you navigating through those, that depression, fighting the church community, putting yourself in that right space, you're then able to pursue your personal growth and evolve yeah. from who you were before and build your faith around, you mm-hmm. know, your purpose and the things that you want to achieve in your life. And so I I find that in reading through your your book or your memoir, it really has a strong focus on there is a purpose to every broken story. And when you're going through it, (laughs) it's hard to imagine that there's anything purposeful about your mom being sick or losing your mom or having a family disown you or getting an inheritance that you blow through. It's hard to see like what what did it serve? What yeah. purpose does that serve? But I think looking back and just based on reading your memoir, you found that it helped you establish that potential to grow, yeah, and better navigate your own your own struggles and your setback. Would you agree? Your setbacks? Would you agree? Hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, you know, I always say like the benefit of hindsight is 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 
great. And when you have the benefit of hindsight, but in the moment, it's so mm. difficult to, to, to see like, how is this, how does this have meaning? How does this have purpose? And I can legitimately, I mean, I'm 38 um, now and I can look back on my life and, you know, zero stars. I don't recommend going through anything that I went through. However, I will say that like, if I had to go through all of it again, knowing what I know now, but wouldn't like say, I'd say knowing what I know now, but not being able to change anything I would. And I realize that sounds bananas. Like, of course, it does. My mom here. <laughs> of course I want my mom here. Like of, I, I miss her every day. Raising kids, you know, without her is so hard and, and the pain that I experienced. And even like, since I, I got saved, like, you know, we went through pregnancy losses and we've experienced great, great tragedy, but the joy that I have, I can say, honestly, like it is worth it. And it's, that sounds so weird. And I, mm -hmm. I, but I think too, is because I've, I've now been able to help other people who are going through it and, and minister to them or care for them, or I know how to love them through that experience. And so if, if, if I knew all over again, that I would be right where I am today, that the only way to get where I am today is to go through all of that crap, mm. I would do it again. And I, I don't know why that, that doesn't make any sense to anybody, to anybody. It doesn't even <laughs> make sense to me, but I know now like wisdom comes through experience and, and, yep. and pain and trial and suffering. And, and it's through the deepest pain and suffering and trials that I've gone through that I've get, I've grown the most as a person. So anyway, I realize that sounds again, bananas and people probably look at me like I have seven heads when I say that, but, but it's true. It is true because sometimes, I mean, the reality is that you have to go through hard things to understand certain things yeah. and just hard things are, it looks different for, for everybody, but it's inevitable in life. Yeah. Life, one of the foundations of life is hard things. It's difficult things, unfortunately, but that's what gives people resilience. And that's what, you know, that's what makes people, people. I want to ask you writing this memoir getting all of this out and I, you've just you've touched very high level on like you know specific points in your book but there's a whole lot of different things that you cover uh, about your life yeah. story how did this impact you personally like mm. putting it on paper it was really healing and I made a vow to myself and 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 with God that I wouldn't write this book until I and I think because this book has been in the works for so long, I think I now again, benefit of hindsight is God wasn't going to let me write the book or publish the book until I was ready and, and healed because I think it's important to write, especially really, really painful experiences. I think it's important to write those things from a place of healing. Mm -hmm. When you're writing in the midst of healing, it can be a little bit messier. Um, and so, and I, and I wrote a lot of it while I was healing, but that's not the finished product. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. um, so I will say, yeah, it was a really healing process. My dad and I had a really, uh, had a lot of hard conversations that we should have had 20 years ago. A lot of things that I learned in this process, I, my mom was a, I mean, she was a, a, a bit of a pack rat, but also saved everything. And so I have all of her journals, her diaries. Oh. And so I learned so much in going through them. I'd never read them before and I'd chosen not to. And and so I, I did, I did choose to this time. And so it really helped gain a lot of insight as to like what was going on, you know, even before I was born. I mean, there were journals from all the way back to when she was in Vietnam that I was able to just learn a lot about her and answered a lot of questions that I had that I just didn't have the maturity to know to ask mm -hmm. when she was alive. So there were, you know, there were parts of this book that were really, really healing to write. There were parts of this book that were so fun to write. Oh my gosh, there's a couple chapters that were just a blast. I loved writing them so much. I laughed while writing them. And after writing a chapter, that chapter, I would just be like, oh, that was, that was fun. And then there were chapters that were, that chewed me up and spit me out. And, and I think that's why I said like the, the title of the book really is like just 
chef's kiss. Yeah, it's, it is chef's kiss. It is, <laughs> it is, it's spot on. Spot <laughs> on. Um, because it, you know, there were, there were pieces of it that, that were really, really difficult to, to write. And, and I've, you know, now read through them many times and I cry still every single time. And then there are chapters that I, I still laugh every time I read, yeah. like, well, I'm a funny writer sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I- yeah. <laughs> well, I can't wait to pick up my own physical copy. I have the PDF version that you sent me, but I'm going to, I can't wait to pick up a copy. Before I let you go, you have to tell everybody again, remind us for the third time, what is your clever girl superpower? <laughs> my clever girl superpower. Well, it's funny because I, I know that you asked this question. I don't remember what I said the first time. So my clever girl su- superpower. It can change. It's okay. It, it, so, you can it, change it. Whatever you like. I think what's really interesting is depending on what I answer, maybe this is what I've said before and I don't know. I cannot remember what I said before, but I believe that my clever girl superpower is empathy. And I just, I can read people really well and I can empathize with people really well. And I think especially when you've been through, like we've talked about, like when you've been through hard things, I think being able to empathize with somebody and really understand like where they're coming from and, and connect with people on an emotional and in a personal level, I think is so important. I'm so, I value relationships really highly. And so I think that that's, I think that that's my, my clever girl superpower. So I don't know if that's what I said before, but that's my answer now. <laughs> I don't remember either, but it this works. Empathy is a great superpower to have. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And then Molly, please tell everyone the name of your book again, when it comes out, where we can find it, where people can keep in touch with you. Please share all of that. Yeah. So it's called If I Don't Laugh, I'll Cry, How Death, Debt, and Comedy Led to a Life of Faith Farming and Forgetting What I Came Into This Room For. And it comes out March 26th, 2024. You can pre-order it now wherever books are sold. So pre-ordering is obviously, as you know, Bola, it's huge. It's huge. And I am uh, recording the audiobook. So if you just love the sound of my voice and you are an (laughs) audiobook person, you can listen to the audiobook. And we're going to have some special features in there too. I'm so excited about that. And you'll get to hear the stories in my own voice. And yeah, I, I am so excited and I'm just so grateful. The people that have said that, they, you know, as they've read it kind of in the early days, it's been such an encouragement that everybody has said that they like it and they, that they love it. And so I'm, I just can't wait for people to get it in their hands. I really think it's the kind of book that it will make you laugh. It will make you cry and it will make you laugh. So you cry. <laughs> well, congratulations again, Molly. I'm so excited for you. I'm so Thank proud you. of you. It's a pleasure having known you all this while. And I'm just, I can't wait for your book to come out. Congrats again. And thank you for being on the show again. Thank you so much, Bola. It is a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you've loved the episode, but you don't yet subscribe to the podcast, you can do that everywhere you listen to your podcast episodes and head on over to iTunes and leave a review so other amazing women just like you can find this podcast as well. Thank you so much for being here, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.